0: And, you ready? All right. It's really nice to be here. Um, I remember when the air conditioning system was put in, and someone rather derisively referred to this place as the Club Med of meditation centers. <laughs> not, not so bad on a 90 degree day, right? Um, I also see that there's still some ongoing conversation about windows open and windows closed. Uh, Nice to know certain traditions continue on. (laughs) I I said to Larry when they put this thing in, you have no idea what kind of trouble you're creating for people by giving us options. So um, sometimes people ask me, so you're a Zen teacher and you're a Vipassana teacher. So what, what do you do that's different? And my response basically has been, well, when I sit in a Vipassana teacher's seat, I'm a Vipassana teacher. When I sit in a Zen teacher's seat, I'm a Zen teacher. I teach the same thing. No difference. Um, there is one difference, and, and that is that um, I've been trained in the use of something called the koan. Some of you know something about those, and uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there about them. Uh, Sometimes they're referred to as puzzles or paradoxes or uh, things to figure out. Um, I'm going to talk about one of those tonight because you don't have to be in the Zen tradition to uh, have interest in koans and get some benefit from them. Um, They can be a lot of fun to play with. And they're a unique tool uh, with, uh, really, quite a a rich and diverse literature. Um, uh, The word koan is a a Japanese translation of a a Chinese word that means public case. And in ancient China, when something had been heard judicially, the, the, um, the finding was posted in a public place and that was considered the public case. Um, these stories that are called koans uh, are basically encounters uh, between teachers and teachers, teachers and students, students and students, and um, one way to look at them is a very ancient wisdom made available in a very condensed form. Uh, they're often very, very short stories. Uh, sometimes not even stories. Uh, most people are familiar with the, with the mistranslation of the one-hand koan, uh, often heard as, what's the sound of one hand clapping? It's actually just, what's the sound of one hand? Um, obviously not a story. But the ones that are, the, to me, the most fun and, and really the richest are these encounters that have such vibrancy to them so what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, we're going to sit for a couple of minutes, and then I'm just going to tell you a story, and maybe drop some suggestions about the story, um, and ask you to immerse yourself in the story as best you can. As with any practice, watch the mind. Meditation practice for. Particularly, folks that are new, uh, is not primarily about getting calm and getting blissed out, and uh, you know, reducing your blood pressure. Mindfulness practice has has real benefits, measured benefits, researched benefits, in terms of self care, uh, in terms of working with chronic pain, uh, panic disorder, etc. This teaching is not about that. This teaching points to a kind of radical freedom that uh, transcends conditions, that doesn't leave us dependent on whether we're comfortable or uncomfortable, whether we like what's happening or we don't like what's happening. Uh, Larry Rosenberg has often called it, come what may mind, that we're willing and able to meet Our practice takes us to a place where we're willing and able to meet whatever shows up. And if you haven't noticed already, we don't get to pick and choose what shows up, right? I mean, for those of us who are still playing around with, yeah, I'm in control of my life. One of the things that this practice does is it begins to stick holes in that that misperception. Uh, So, close your eyes, just allow the attention to come to the breath, wherever you notice it, this gentle movement of breathing in and breathing out. Sounds are being heard, sensations are being felt, there's a direct knowing of the physical body sitting upright and breathing. In ancient China, uh, there was a teacher named Dao Wu uh, whose monastery was uh, not isolated as we think about many uh, monasteries and meditation communities in ancient China. Uh, He was within walking distance of a small town, uh, farms, and would often show up in the community when uh, there was a death in the family or an illness and uh, would sometimes uh, do chanting, sometimes just sit with people, uh, holding the hand of sick people or uh, even playing with children. There was a young man uh, who worked with him as an attendant And he had been sitting with uh, some difficulties. He began to wonder what he was really doing with his practice, with his life. He began to struggle with uh, this question of, what does it really mean to be alive? How is it that we somehow show up uh, through birth? have a life that's filled with unpredictability and uncertainty, a life that is vulnerable to sickness, uh, that ages and that uh, at some point does what we call die. And he'd struggled with these questions for some time, being unable to really put them into words And one day, uh, there had been a death in the community, and Dao Wu and his attendant uh, went to pay a condolence call on this family. And as they walked along, this uh, attendant began to feel greater and greater urgency and greater and greater frustration. And they walked into the small room where the coffin was, and the relatives were... Uh, sitting and talking quietly. And Dao Wu and his attendant walked over to the coffin and uh, suddenly the attendant uh, raised his hand and struck the coffin. Uh, turned to his teacher and said, Alive or dead? And the teacher said, I'm not saying alive. I'm not saying dead. The attendant asked, why not? And Dao Wu said, I'm not saying. Now you can imagine that in this small room of mourners uh, following Confucian proprieties and entertaining the abbot of this uh, monastery, they've come to love and respect. Uh, you can imagine the, the ripple of shock that might have run through the room. Uh, they might have heard uh, stories of crazy antics between uh, Zen people. And here they were actually witnessing one. In the, in the most unexpected way, this attendance urgency had burst forth And the room settled back down, and uh, they made their condolences and began walking back to the monastery. Again, the urgency began to build in this student. And he turned to the teacher, and he stopped the teacher, and he said, I've got to have an answer to my question, and if you don't answer me, I'll hit you. And the teacher said, well... I'll let you hit me, but I'm not saying. and the student hit him. Now the story doesn't really say what happened at that moment the t- the student uh, turned and left the teacher. Uh, maybe the teacher got him got up and dusted himself off and Uh, realized that it might not be such a great idea for them to go back to the monastery together with him sporting a new shiner that the other monks might uh, become more than just a bit upset about that he might have advised this young person to go on a pilgrimage and talk with other teachers in any case at that at that juncture the student leaves this teacher uh, who he'd really come to love. And after uh, a few years, uh, word was spread that old Dao Wu had died. Uh, and this former attendant showed up at the uh, monastery of another student of Dao Wu and asked to talk over this conundrum And uh, they sat and they started to talk and uh, the student began to relate this story. He said, you know, I ask again and again, uh, alive or dead? And uh, this other teacher stood up, fixed him in his gaze and said, I am not saying. And something shifted for this young person. He saw something that he'd not seen before. Something opened in a way that had been closed. Uh, He stayed with the with this other teacher for some time and worked in the garden with the other monks and uh, one day walked into the meditation hall with his hoe over his shoulder. And uh, rather unorthodox behavior in a meditation hall. You know, imagining, imagine uh, someone walking in here with a hoe over their shoulder. Um, and walking from west to east and north to south. And the teacher uh, asks, what are you doing? Rather obvious thing to ask in this circumstance. And a former attendant said, I'm looking for the sacred bones of our dead master. And this old teacher said, "Uh, the waves flood every place. Uh, The white caps overwhelm the sky. What is it that you're looking for? Why are you looking elsewhere? for the sacred bones. Uh, The attendant's comment was, this is just what I need to strengthen and continue my practice. So alive or dead, what is it that Uh, makes us uh, feel and know that we're unmistakably alive. Uh, Does our practice aim in this direction Uh, to create a kind of sensitivity in the body, a clarity in the mind, an engagement of spirit in the world? What is it that naturally enlivens us. Right now, how do each of us know this liveliness right here, right now? Is it in the hearing? Is it in the confusion? Is it in the sensation in the body? How do we know that we're alive? If we uh, step away from the thinking mind and look directly at this moment What is this liveliness? How do we deaden our lives? Do we turn from uh, that which enlivens us and which we love? Which sparks our spirit but maybe feels a little risky? moment, abandon our life? In the movement of anger, alive or dead, what is it that precipitates our withdrawing from ourselves, from our own truth that we know without, uh, without even thinking about it? When we're uncomfortable, when we're afraid, when we're sad, alive or dead, do we treat those moments by numbing ourselves out? Certainly possible to use our meditation practice for that. or maybe an extra glass of wine after dinner. Is it possible to carry these this question uh, throughout the day as a way to orient ourselves uh, to really come back to our embodied life, alive or dead? And how is the urgency in our life? Do we have an urgency that we allow to push us to uh, maybe doing things that others might seem, uh, might feel, are unseemly? Is there anything in our life that we uh, would be willing uh, to put everything? Forward for? And do we allow that urgency to come to life or do we uh, push it down, alive or dead? Right now, as these questions are floating through the room, alive or dead? Where does this urgency in each of our lives lie? Can we really ask ourselves do I have any energy in my life that's truly urgent? What about the urgency to be awake and be free? Or do I deaden the edges of around that, around that and hold back a full commitment? Am I alive to real commitment? Or do I allow fear to deaden it? it wise to not say anything? One is not saying anything uh, deadening, withholding. When is it a kind of wisdom that encourages the questioner to stand on their own two feet? Do we acknowledge the limits of trying to figure things out? With what are we truly intimate in our life? Uh, Can we bring some real care and attention to that edge? Noticing when we shrink back. Noticing what opens the heart. How do we know alive or dead? One way to play with a koan. Um, I'm going to be really interested to, if you know if you're willing to share what's what was happening during that period for you. Um, you know, the, koans have three parts, and in formal koan practice, uh, there's a the answers to the koans often involve a physical presentation if we're not embodied physically in our understanding, how are we going to be engaged and embodied in the rest of our life? And we often hold back at that edge for fear of being embarrassed or body image or self-image or whatever. And so if you were doing this in a formal co on a, r- a relationship. Uh, you'd be asked to demonstrate alive or dead. Uh, you'd be asked to show that urgency, to really present that. And it's a way really to engage our life. And it offers the possibility of some uh, deeper shift in perspective. You know, you carry something around like I'm not saying. And you begin to notice how language works. You know, you begin to notice, oh, I really, you know, should not be saying because it's just not skillful. And we hold that edge of I'm not saying out of love. You know, when we set limits with our kids, in some ways we're taking that position of I'm not saying and my recollection as a kid and having a couple of kids of my own is that we didn't like that very much you know that uh, setting that limit and saying you know I really can't answer that question for you or I can't give you this right now you're 12 I can't give you the keys to the car sorry about that now. Okay, so you want a $150 pair of jeans? I guess you might as well hate me about this as anything else because nope, we're not going there. Not saying. And to what extent is that attitude and withholding? You know, all of these tools are to hold us at the edge of our life and make us more alive to what's actually happening. Um, And the urgency piece, you know, what is it that really fires us up? Does our practice help us open to that? You know, and are we really open to discovering something new? Because the mind is so conditioned to, to look for what it already knows. Oh, okay, so I know what enlightenment is. It's X, Y, and Z because I read a lot about it. The Buddha said da-da-da. So what we do is we have an idea of what we're looking for and we find it or we don't find it. But it completely eliminates the possibility of something radically new, something that we haven't thought of before, the creative move. And often we have to do a certain, or the, our practice has to do a certain amount of housecleaning around thinking. Because we're, we're brought up, largely, to see life as a problem to be solved or a puzzle to be figured out. And given that life doesn't seem to be amenable to us figuring it out, we end up being really frustrated a lot of the time. And koans are really, really good at that. Uh, because the embodied answer is often one, almost always one, that you didn't think your way into. Ajahn Shah I mean, anybody who doesn't know who Ajahn Chah was? It's not fatal, I'm just... Because I'm going to give a little explanation. Okay, thank you. He was he was a Thai forest teacher who had a tremendous influence on American Vipassana teachers, and he was a, you know he was a country guy, and in the Thai forest tradition, uh, before all the forests were eliminated, um, monks would wander around the forest, and they'd settle and. Maybe spend some time with a teacher, and then the teacher would say, you know, either go on to the next teacher or go teach someplace. And he was a he was a pretty you know down to earth guy, and he would sit out in the in his uh, little courtyard, and do interviews. People would line up, and you know he would take on whoever showed up, and he would do things like long or short, and and. Apparently, would give you no wiggle room. Yeah. Um, so what happens if you can't go forward and you can't go back? You can't go right or left, up or down. Where do you go? Okay. And and it's this direct challenge to the thinking mind, because as long as that is in operation, around ultimate truth, fundamental uh, understanding those two are not compatible. So this is one of the ways to begin to work very directly with that. So I've been talking long enough. Um, Thoughts about this? Questions? Uh, Observations about what happened and what you noticed? Yeah.